Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Mark McCoy, a four-time Olympian. In 1992 at the Barcelona Summer Olympics, Mark was the first Canadian to ever win a gold medal in the 110-meter hurdles. Mark's life has had quite the trajectory. He was born in Guyana, grew up in England, moved to Canada, went to university in the United States, had his first Olympics experience in 1980, stopped before it even started because of the Canadian boycott of the Moscow Games, married a German runner, competed in three Summer Olympic Games, culminating in winning his gold medal in Barcelona, left Canada to become an Austrian citizen, and then returned to Canada, where among many career accolades, he was inducted into both the Athletics Ontario Hall of Fame and the Canadian Olympic Hall of Fame. That is a lot to unpack, so let's get going. Welcome, Mark, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, thanks for having me, Andrew, and thanks for that intro. Sometimes you forget. I've been around a long time. (laughs) uh, uh, Yeah, I'm back residing in Toronto. I moved around the world. They used to call me Mr. International for track and field reasons. Track is obviously a lot bigger in Europe than it is here. That's why I spent a lot of time over there and actually got my Austrian citizenship because it helped with my track career. But Toronto's home. My family's here, and uh, I've been back here ever since I retired after the Atlanta game. So it was actually uh, a fourth summer game, as you never mentioned, and the the one boycott. So it was on five teams. That one I ran for Austria. And if I may ask about your family, how is everyone doing? Everyone's great. We made it. Everybody made it through COVID. Thank God. And, uh, you know, everybody said all my, you know, my siblings are here. My kids are here. Toronto is the best city, despite all the um, attention we've been getting internationally for not so good reasons. It's still still a great city. I've been in many, many major cities around the world, and this is this is one of the best. Well, absolutely. And Mark, I want to jump into the two questions that I can't miss out on. Number one, where do you keep your 1992 Olympic gold medal? You know what? Some reason I had a funny feeling you want to ask that today, and I know we're not on 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 video, but here it is, right here. The only reason I have it here today is because I I do some work up at York University. One of the athletes up says, how come you never bring your gold medal for us to see? So I had to go find it in a box, which I found <laughs> yesterday, and I just happened to have it with me. So just happened, like I said, I, I haven't seen that thing in months, or maybe years, but uh, I, I picked it up today to bring to York next week. Well, so, I know if I had one, Mark, I'd be wearing it 24-7, <laughs> and I want to tell the listeners uh, that it still shines bright very impressive great to see glad you dug it out and you're going to show the younger people and the second big question i got to ask you and i don't mean to draw attention to this but you and i were of a similar vintage can a 61 year old mark mccoy still run the hurdles hell no (laughs) (laughs) he can't do it doesn't want to do it i'm a joke all the time and people are saying you know mark just go over hurdles show us how to do it yeah you know last time i tried that it took me about three weeks to walk straight again so (laughs) I still do a lot of running with my athletes, but yeah. I never want to go for one of those things again. <laughs> I have to imagine that that is a constant challenge. The younger whippersnappers must always come up to you and say, hey, Mark, r- race against me. Mark, race against me. And, of course, they have the advantage of youth. How do you deal with all these uh, youngsters challenging you? You should just kick their ass. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, you know, honestly, one of, it, and I'm sure we're going to get into this today, but Track and field has always been my passion. Health and fitness has always been my passion. And I literally run with most of my athletes who are young hockey players three, four, five times a day. Mm. Um, I go out to, you're from Toronto, so it's Centennial Park where we got hills and, and the track and uh, fields. And I literally do the workouts with all my athletes. I'm not the type of coach that just says, here, do this and watch them. 
Yeah. Um, I, with most of my athletes, I actually do it with them. So I can, I can hang, I can hang in there. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it must be very inspiring for them to see you uh, moving with them and not just yelling at them what to do. Let's please go all the way back. Get the Mark McCoy story. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Okay. I hope you got, I hope you got a few days. <laughs> I was born in uh, Georgetown, Guyana. I left there when I was nine months old. My parents migrated to England, uh, as a lot of West Indians were doing at that time. And I, we stayed there for 12 years. And then we came to Canada uh, when I started grade eight. What part of Toronto did again. you move to? Uh, North York. So I've always been, you know, relatively central, not downtown. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm always in, I'm either, you know, I'm on that part of the city, North York, Toko, Scarborough. That's where I, I stay right now. And how did your family um, end up coming to Toronto as opposed to anywhere else? I think my parents, my, my aunt lived here. So some, some families went to England and some came to Canada from the Caribbean. At the time when my aunt came here, my mother and father came over to see them. And they were impressed by Toronto. So they came home and they said, pack up, guys. We're going, we're going to Canada. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's how that happened. It was just, uh, you know, they found love with love it compared, like, well, you know, it's, in the summer here, it's bright, it's sunny, everything's big, big roads, big houses. England to me is gray, dingy, small houses, small roads. So it's, it's impressive. I remember the day I came over, I couldn't believe how big everything looked and how sunny and bright. So it, it was, you know, I think it was a good move. And do you want to give a shout out to what, what schools did you attend? Again, I, I am really a rolling stone. So <laughs> I went to a Catholic school, I was brought up Catholic in uh, North York, St. Matthias, grade eight. It's where I met my childhood friend and, and my longest friend with uh, Tony Sharp, who you might know of. He was a Canadian Olympian as well, bronze medalist in the 4x1 in 84. Um, I met him in uh, grade eight and we continue to be friends. He's actually the first coach of Andre de Grasse, so he's coaching mm. as well. And he's done well for himself and we still keep in touch to this day. Then I went to Senator O'Connor, which was a Catholic school, for two years. Then I went to, my, my dad actually got training works for the government, so he got transferred out to Kingston. So I went to Frontenac in uh, Kingston. I didn't like it. After three months, I came back, went to George Vanier in North York, and then I went to Stephen Leacock in Scarborough. And then from there, I got a scholarship to Clemson, South Carolina. Again, didn't like it too much down there. It was a really small town. Great school, but small town. Came back, went to York University, and then eventually went down to LSU, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And that was the end of my school career. And from there, I went over to Europe to train for, for the Olympics. And how did you ever get into hurdles in the first place? That is not a common sport that kids automatically go into. So there must be a story behind how you chose it. There's certainly, oh, you know what? Uh, I tell this all the time as well, is I didn't choose it. It chose me. Hmm. Nobody in their right mind gets up in the morning and says, <laughs> I want to run over those three and a half foot barriers that are heavy as hell. I used to, the first two or three years of training, all I came home was bloody knees and ankles from hitting those things. Basically, when I came over from England, um, England's a sport, you know, soccer is the number one sport, and they do a lot of cross-country running. They're known for their long-distance running, not so much their sprints at the time anyway. So in grade nine, I was doing 100 meters and 1,500 meters from my high school. Needless to say, I didn't do well in any of them. <laughs> so in grade 10, my coach said, well, you're not really good at anything, but the only thing we have open is hurdles. You're pretty tall, you got long legs, why don't you try hurdles? And my first year of doing hurdles in grade 10, I went off some. From there, I just stuck with it. But uh, yeah, it was not my first, second, or probably even my 10th choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, as you say, it chose you, and at the age of 18 in 1980, you qualified to represent Canada at the Summer Games in Moscow. However, the Canadian government boycotted the Summer Games to protest the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Mark, how did you feel about that decision by your government? And obviously, you must have been devastated. Yeah, yeah. No, at the time, it was it was definitely devastating. Uh, young guy. Most people don't make the Olympic team. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it's quite difficult. I think. Yeah, I would say. 0.6% of the population who try and make it. Um, so as when it's uh, you struggle and you make it, and then all of a sudden it gets taken away from you for political reasons or whatever the, the cases may be. Uh, and as an 18-year-old kid, you're absolutely devastated, which I was. Um, luckily for me that I, you know, I had good coaching. I had good uh, teammates and friends who are still like wanted to continue to the, to the next ones. And, and as, as you know, it's not like professional sports where you can have a, you know, you miss one championship next year, you got another one. We have to mm-hmm. wait for years. So, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, I, I love track and I was on scholarship for track. So that helped a lot also. Uh, when you're, you know, that's, you get basically, it wasn't a lot of money, but you're getting paid to train and compete. Uh, so that get me, kept me going. And I, and I got better and better as the years went on. So in 80, even though I made the team, I wasn't exactly a stellar hurdler. Mm. So, but it would have been nice to go. So I just, as you know, as the years progressed, 81, 82, I won the Commonwealth Games in 82. So I was, I was, you know, breaking Canadian records and getting better. And as we got to 84, you know, I was one of the top hurdlers in the world. So... That, that those things motivate you as you go along and you and you see improvement as long as you keep seeing the improvement I think uh, that's that's enough motivation well and you certainly did you arrived at your first Olympic Games you could actually participate in Los Angeles 1984 you were at the time ranked in the top three in the world you missed the podium by 0.05 seconds finishing fourth but obviously moving up the ranks how was that experience, and how did you feel coming so close? Did it motivate you further, or did you kind of feel like, ugh, make you a little sad? Um, a little bit of both. I was devastated, obviously. I mean, because I had actually had probably the best start of my life. I've always been known for my start. Mm-hmm. You know, even the first hurdle, I was literally, you know, a yard ahead, which is unheard of. Um, but then I hit some hurdles, and I saw a couple guys go by me. And, you know, when you dip and you lose by a, like a blink of an eye, Fourth place is probably the worst place you could have been. I'd rather finish last. Than <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it, so I was devastated for a while. Probably a couple of weeks. I just, you know, couldn't believe I threw it away because it was my own my own fault. And, you know, you regroup. And, and as I was, I was still on scholarship at the time. So you just keep training. I was still having fun. It wasn't like I was getting bad or I got injured or something. Um, it was just, you know, basically a, a mistake in my race. And... I corrected those things and continued to improve year, year over year as we went on af- after the uh, 84 Olympics. And Mark, did you find that you had coaches or teammates or other supporters that helped you have this attitude of taking it as a learning experience and keep going? Or were you self-motivated to say, you know, I can keep going, I can learn from this? Because it's quite interesting to me that uh, a lot of people would have just like said, that's too much, it was too much work, I'm going to move on to something else. But it motivated you instead to move, keep improving. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely had good uh, people surrounding me uh, growing up. I had uh, good coaching and great teammates and athletes to work with. But most of it came from me, and I still, after all these years, have not found the answer as to why. Because I have five brothers and sisters, and there's nobody in my family who's an athlete. Usually you hear about these families who are athletic families, brothers, sisters, fathers. Like somebody does sport, and it's in, 
in the uh, family. None of mine did, but yet I just wanted to keep going. So most of my career, probably 10 years of my career before the Olympics, before Barcelona Olympics, I should say, I was self-coached because there really weren't any coaches here in, in Canada. So I did go down to the States and I worked with the athletes down there. And I got guidance from some of the best athletes, hurdlers in the world from the States. And I used that. And if, if I couldn't find somebody here to guide me, I would just do my own workouts. So the majority of my career, I, I was just self-coached. Um, so I, I just, I was always motivated. And I, again, I think because I was always like a seeker, I was like, okay, how can I get better? What do you guys do? Like, and the things that I found worked and it seemed like each year I got better. That's, it's a self-fulfilling profit. You, you know, it's just a, a, a vicious cycle. It just makes you work harder. You see results, you want to work harder. So that's sort of how I, I, I kept going on. And I kept see, seeking better and better coaching. So, you know, I went to LSU and they had actually Dan Path, Donovan Bailey's coach was there. Lauren Seagrace, one of the best sprint coaches uh, in the world was there. So this was before they were Dan Path or Lauren Seagrace. So they were learning and they were growing. And, you know, I was around those guys. Then I went over to Britain and Colin Jackson, my training partner, who's number one hurdler in the world at the time, and his coach, Malcolm Arnold, Arnold were there. Um, so I just try to keep surrounding myself as, uh, as I climb the ladder around better and better people. Like, and that's what I, the message I give these kids uh, that I coach now. Like, as much as I love Toronto and I don't think I'd ever want to live in the States, my passion now is to train these younger athletes, uh, you know, mostly hockey players because it's Canada but to get scholarships, go to the States, because their attitude for excellence is a lot higher than ours. So you need to be around those people. And I think by being at Clemson, being at LSU, uh, being around these the attitudes that really, really, really want it badly, it helped, you know, you can fly with the eagles or scratch with the turkeys, as they say. <laughs> as they say. Now, Mark, let's move on to the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. In your finals, you hit a number of hurdles. You finished seventh. What was your memories of 88? And, of course, we'll get to the big news around one of your teammates in a moment. But I want to get your perspective on what your expectations were and how you felt once that finals was done. That was, you know, I, th I think that was the year I should have done a lot better. Mm. And, you know, we'll, and we'll get into the Ben Johnson story in a second and myself, for that matter. But, um what most people don't know is in the spring of that year, I had Achilles um, problems. And I was running that whole year, training that whole year, getting cortisone shots in my Achilles. It just got, kept getting worse and worse and worse. And as I got to the games, I was in a lot of pain. But as athletes, just like Mahomes last weekend, like I, mm -hmm. I thought he was done at halftime. And he came, comes back on the field, MVP. They shoot him up with stuff. It's like, as an athlete, it doesn't matter what pain you're going through. You're getting on that line as long as you can put one foot in front of the other, and you're gonna you're gonna try. Yep. So um, I did. I did. I I, I just tried as, as much as I could. Even though going into the games, I was even though I was in pain, I was still in great shape, uh, and I thought for sure I was going to get a medal there. And I just like hit hurdles and was out of it. You sound like a guy, Mark, who doesn't put up with excuses. Nobody wants to hear excuses, but a lot of people give excuses. <laughs> I'm going off, off, I'm digressing a little, but it, it strikes me as you're all about self-responsibility. You're not about making excuses. But what do you tell your younger athletes when they do try to give you excuses for why they didn't do X, Y, Z? Exactly that. It's like, I know, again, I've been doing this for, I can't believe it's been like half a century. Yeah. <laughs> I already started this stuff when I was like 10. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, it's almost half a century I've been doing this. And I'm like, 
I fire a lot of athletes. I'm at the stage now where you know I'm I, go, I call myself semi-retired. I help the ones that want to help want to be helped. Mm-hmm. And if I get excuses from you guys, I'm like I know. I, I've been there. I've done it. I've made the excuses myself, but I still, you know, I can make excuses and still train. If you're not willing to do the work, you're, you know, you're not going to make in hockey. Like I said, it's it's less than one percent make it. Like, just don't waste your time. Don't waste your parents' money, basically, because there are no room for excuses at you know at that level of hockey. And but yeah, like I said, either you do it. Like I'll have you know, and parents pay quite, quite a bit of money. For their kids to come and train and yeah. sometimes they'll come in they'll be sitting on the ground while everybody else is training and they're like i'm paying you all this money why is my kid sitting there i'm like well you t- teach him how to like i'm not here to babysit you teach him to, to do the work and listen yeah. and you can come back otherwise don't bring him back so i'm i'm, I'm pretty i'm pretty tough I, I don't yell i don't scream at the kids i'm like you do the work or you leave because i don't want you <laughs> interrupting the other kids and that's just how i that's how i am i've always been my, that's how the my coach was with me I went to Cardiff and, you know, rainy, it's cold, it's, you know, I had my, actually at 88, right after Seoul, I had an Achilles operation because mm. of uh, the injuries I had during 88. And Malcolm said, you know what, plane's right there, you can go home. <laughs> I'm not asking you to come over here. You want to train? I'll be more than happy to help you. But if you don't, get on the plane and go back home. That's the type of, ad- and he never yelled and screamed either. I loved him. Yeah. You know, Malcolm was the best. That's the type of people I want to be around. And those are the type of people who are going to make it. The type you don't have to yell and scream at. The type you don't have to, you know, put up with the excuses. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not rocket science. I have two rules for my athletes. Number yeah. one, show up. And number two, keep showing up. <laughs> it sounds easy enough. Mark, the big news from Seoul, of course, was your teammate, Ben Johnson. He blazed to a 100-meter sprinting gold medal in 9.79 seconds, but then tested positive for banned substances. Three days later, he was stripped of his gold medal. It was reported that in protest of the rush to judgment and treatment of Ben Johnson, that you, Mark McCoy, immediately left the Olympic Games in Korea prior to competing in the 4 by 100 meter relay race. You were there, your perspective on everything, and then we'll get into what came of that whole situation and the Dubin inquiry. But you were there. Take us back to that time. And you were one of the very first people who actually got this right. Thank you. Most people say... You know, you left because, you know, you, you, they tested you positive for drugs and you got because I got banned for two years. But no, I was actually banned for leaving because the way they treated Ben, like, don't get me wrong. I did drugs for a few months that year because I was training with Ben. I don't believe in taking drugs. I was just like, you know, what I thought that was the only route at that point. Like everybody who was winning was taking drugs. You either take them or you don't compete. I was wrong. But that doesn't mean you persecute. Like he's a he's a Canadian hero one minute. He's a Jamaican the next minute. He's not even Canadian. That mm-hmm. was from the coaches, from the other athletes on the team. And I'm like, you know what? You don't persecute a guy for making a mistake. Sure, if it's not, you know, he made a mistake, he got caught, give him his penalty and let him go on with life. But no, they persecuted. And like you said, when we, once we got home, they had this big inquiry and all like, and then 15 years down the road, they had that documentary 979 to find out that everybody in the final was on drugs. So again, not that I'm a proponent for drugs, but you know, it happens in sport. Athletes want to win, and we make mistakes just like everybody else. I just didn't like the way they were um, they were treating them. So I'm like, you know what? If he's Jamaican, then you, if you don't need him, you don't need me. I got on a plane. I was supposed to run the 4 by one relay, and I'm like, I'm not running for you guys. And they banned me for two years. So, But people always ask me, like, do you regret what you did? I'm like, that's the best <laughs> mistake I ever made in my life. I would never change anything because it was only that two years 
that got me to you know to realize you know my whole career, and it also got me to go training with Colin Jackson and Malcolm Arnold in Britain, which without them I would never have won the Olympics. So well, I've never gone over there unless it happened. Well, it's interesting you call it my best mistake I ever made. As you note, time for the big comeback. When your suspension was lifted, you went back to the track in 1991. As you just mentioned, Mark, you lived and trained in Wales with your closest friend and rival, World Junior and Commonwealth Games champion Colin Jackson, agreeing that the two of you would not meet in competition until the 1992 Olympic Games, which is exactly what happened. Side by side with Jackson in lane three and you, Mark McCoy, in lane four in the 110-meter hurdle final at Barcelona in 1982, this happened. McCoy and Jackson away quickly. Here comes Tony Dees and Jack Pierce. McCoy has the lead. Norkoff is coming up. Here's Tony Dees. It's going to be McCoy winning it for Canada. Mark McCoy running 1-100th off his personal best. He wasn't the fastest person in this race, but he had it together on this day, winning his semifinal and his final. Mark McCoy. The fastest starter in the world, you led from start to finish. Despite slamming the last hurdle, you won the Olympic title, 13.12 seconds. At age 30, you were the oldest winner in the event's history. You're hearing this for the 10,000th time, and I can see from your look on your face, you will hear it as many times as it gets played. How does that take you back all these years later? Still got goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. Every time I hear it, I, you know, sometimes I wake up, I still can't believe it. When you think about you know, I talk to athletes all the time and they're talk, they're struggling to make the team. And there's a huge difference between making a team and then even getting out of the first round and then from the first round going to the through, through all the rounds to the final. And as I've done many a time, made it to the final and not getting on the podium. It's, it's massive. And sometimes I wake up and I'm like, it's not real. <laughs> like, seriously, to my, they, all these 30 years later, I'm still, I'm still in, in awe. And I do love watching the race. And I, you know, I show my kids at the race and I go to schools and they play the race and I get goosebumps every time. It's an amazing feeling. It's amazing. It, it was the first Canadian Olympic gold medal in track and field since 1932. You were the first Canadian to win gold in the 110 meter hurdles. And you were the first black Canadian to win an Olympic gold medal. I mean, this was a significant, significant thing. And it is great to hear you say that you can show the tape. And of course, I'm showing my vintage by calling it the tape, but you show the race to your younger athletes and to your family. And as you say, it's very surreal, isn't it? It is. I get up and I pinch myself. I'm like, this is all a dream. It's not happening. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's the most amazing thing. How much of a big deal was hitting that last hurdle? Because uh, wouldn't that have just totally thrown you off? And, but you plowed through it. There was already too much momentum. I said in 84, when I had the in a way better start than I had in 92, I hit the first hurdle. So you hadn't even got, I haven't even got my, my, my speed going yet. So it makes a big difference to try to, it's almost like doing two starts. But here I was already rolling along and by hitting the last one, I was already, you know, I'd already, I already see the finish line. And by then I knew I'd won because I trained with Colin, like I said, and look at, look at the chances. He's in the, in the lane next to me, the best hurdler in the world, my training partner. He's right next to me, just like he was in, in training all those years that I, that I lived with him. I know that I'm a better starter, and I usually go you know, three or four hurdles, and then I'll start seeing Colin come next to me. And then by hurdle six, he takes off because he's, he's a great finisher. Um, and I didn't see him. So I want to go hurdle seven, hurdle eight. And I didn't, like, I'm not worried about anybody else. 
And if I can be, if I can be Colin, I can beat anybody. Yeah. So when I didn't see him at her late, I'm like, it's game over because you have your speed, you have your momentum. Nobody's going to get faster at that point. So um, I just went through that last hurdle. You know, I didn't mean to hit it, but, <laughs> but I'm it glad was. it was the last one and not the first one. <laughs> That's for sure. It was not going to stop you. Mark, it's time to get deep. You have said you won gold by not chasing gold. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So for my whole career, and I remember being on the, on the start line, especially in um, Los Angeles, I know it's a long time ago, people, how do you remember that? Is every time I used to get to the finals, you get wound up. My, my, my coach, Malcolm, used to say, yeah, don't, you've already done the work. You can't go faster than you've trained to go. So just relax. And I was always like, I gotta, now I got to really hit it. You, you, you can't do that. You can only give 100%. There is no 110, except in hurdles. But there is no 110%. That, and that's why he told us, like, we're not competing. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just, uh, I mean, because I used to run a lot of races. I like to race. So I'd run, you know, 10, 15 races before a major championship. By the time you get to the championship, you're all, you're half burnt out. So Malcolm goes, no, you're, we're not running together and you're only running five races. Pick your races. You're not running any more than that. So I was, a, I was a lot more eager. I was fresh and I wasn't chasing anything. I was like, you know what? If you do the work and you prepare and you have good guidance and people around you, everything else will just fall into place. You don't have to, you don't have to try harder. You can only try hard enough, which is 100%. Mark, I want to take you all the way back. It was over 30 years ago. You win the gold medal in Barcelona. How did your life change? What do you remember about the days that followed that? Um, life did not change that much for me because I'm just, that's just my personality. And I remember my training partners in, in Britain. We had a, a really good, I mean, they're my friends for life. And like, all, not just Colin, but all the other people, all the other guys and girls I trained with over there. And we'd be training, you know, in the years following. And they're all there. And most of my teammates were, you know, they were all Brit- British, of course, but they'd be in, they'd run Commonwealth Games and all, but they never, a lot of them never made it to the Olympics. And we're training, and I remember this girl came up to me one day, and she goes, Mark, you don't act any different. You just won the Olympics. I'm like, I'm no different. Yeah. I just happened to be fast on that day, but I'm, I'm the same guy. So it's, I think it's just my personality. Nothing really changed. Uh, you recognize a little bit more you are in Europe than you are here. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, you go to a restaurant and they'll be like, "Oh, can I order?" Like you get all that stuff there for track. I'm, I'm sure, just like we get it here for the hockey players and things like that. But other than that, not much change really. I just kept plugging away. Any interesting celebrity interactions after you had become a gold medalist? Um, not particularly. You know, the thing is, you do find yourself being able to open doors. I was uh, my my son. I, I discourage my kids from doing track and field because. I'm like, mm. I do any other sport? Because sports are fun, you know. Basketball, there's a ball, there's a game. Hockey, there's you know, there's always a game and a goal, and it's a lot of fun. With it. But track is just it's just pain. <laughs> you just train and train and train, and then you lose, and then you train and train and train, and then you lose until hopefully maybe you win them. So I, I was not that I discouraged them. I said just don't do it unless you love it. So after high school, my son came up to me. He never wanted to do track his his whole career, his whole high school career, and he said, "Dad, I want to be a sprinter." I'm like, "Okay, you want to be a sprinter?" I've always believed I go to the best I can go to. So I call up Usain's coach, and I'm like, you know, I have my son wants to train, and he knew who I was, obviously, because I won the Olympics. So my son got to train with Usain for six months. Now that's, you know, after that, he couldn't take it. It was too hard, which I understand, because it was, he didn't grow up doing it, and he's training with the best on the planet. And he was getting injured, and he's going, like, he, he came home, and he was in tears. He goes, Dad, I, you know what, I'm sorry I wasted your time and your money, and you're, I'm like, 
there's no, no lesson in life you can get better than training with the best in the world. So mm -hmm. don't ever tell me it was a waste. So, you know, it, it does open doors in that respect. I get to, you know, I train Max Domi, who plays for Chicago now, Ty Domi's son. I know Ty. I know, you know, I met Matt Sandin. Like, it just opens doors because, like, if you're Olympic champion, people, oh, they want to meet you. Yeah. And I used to train Arlene Dickinson from Dragon's Den. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so doors do open and you meet these different people, but I don't think there's anybody, never met Michael Jackson or <laughs> anything like that. Life did not change that much. No, uh, not that much. If you are enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Mark McCoy, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got other big-time athletes, including fastest man on the planet, Donovan Bailey, Master of the Blades, Elvis Stoiko, Body Breaks, Hal Johnson, and Championship Boxer Fitz, The Whip, Vanderpool. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Mark, following Barcelona in 1992, you eventually made your way over to Austria, becoming a citizen in 1994, and you finished your career running under their flag. How and why did that come about? Well, basically, um, two reasons. I came back here after 92. I won the World Championships uh, at Skydome in Toronto, Indoor World Championships. I never got very good treatment from the Canadian Federation. We never got along very much. I, you know, I again, not I'm not blaming them. It was just I'm strong. I'm uh, strong-headed, and I want to do certain things, and they do things certain ways, and we just didn't see eye to eye. So after '93, my manager um, is Austrian, and everybody has a manager. So they have all the all the European track meets, and all the track meets are in Europe, and Austria is like right in the center, so I can drive to you know all, all the track meets. So these guys have to fly from North America. And they had sponsors, and like I was, so I was over there in Austria training, and I'm like, Mark, if you're Austrian, we can sponsor you. We can't sponsor a Canadian, so I'm like, okay, I'll become Austrian. So <laughs> it just sort of again fell into place. And in track and field, we don't make that much money, and if you get an opportunity, you have, there was no sponsorship here in, in Canada yeah. at the time. So um, I just went, as I say, follow the money, and I know it was at the end of my career anyway, so I had to, you know, make as much as I could make before I got out of the sport. Yeah. On that note, uh, you retired from athletics in 1996. You returned to Canada with your wife and children. How did you know it was time to retire? Other than the, I guess, the obvious, you were now an older athlete in a young man's game. But what sent you the signal, it's time to retire? <laughs> There's always a funny story behind everything. But uh, number one, like you said, I was, I was 34 years old at the time. I was getting injured a lot more. It's harder to come back from injury. It's not, it's not as much fun. It's not fun at all training when you're injured. But I was at a at a wedding uh, with uh, people I don't know. We just sit on the table. Um, this was after Atlanta. And the couple said to me, oh, Mark, so what do you do now that you're retired? I'm like, oh, I'm retired. <laughs> I didn't even know I was retired. <laughs> I guess that's a sign. Yeah. Like I said, I wasn't, you know, it, unless you're at least making finals in all the European races, it wasn't fun anymore. It's sort of, again, not, not something I had planned. There was no big announcement like they have nowadays on social media. It was just like, you know what? Body's breaking down. 34. Time to go. Well, in, in most careers, you retire at an older age because it's an office job and there's an obvious kind of next step. You, you know, we all hope to go to that beach in Florida. You're 34 years old. What do you do in retirement when you're only in your mid-30s? Did you have a plan or now where you wake up one day and you said, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Basically, that was it because uh, these, these people like, okay, 
you're retired, you're not running well, you're not making any money in even the little that you made in track anymore. So I really didn't have a plan. So first thing, I didn't want to do anything to do with sports or athletics. I'm like, I've done, I've had enough years of that. So in talking with the same couple, same thing. It's like, what do you want to do? What do you think? I'm like, I just want to have some fun for a while. The one thing I always loved, I always wanted to do martial arts. So I retired from track. I wanted to keep active, but I wanted to do something that's completely different. And I was doing that for a while at a place that I found in Hamilton. So I was going back and forth from Toronto to Hamilton. And I would go like four or five times a week. because I just, I loved it. And the guy who owned the franchise for the martial arts studio says, you know what, you, you do all this driving. Why don't you just open a studio of your own? I'm like, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, I'll help you. So I did. I actually opened up two martial arts studios in Mississauga. Where it went really well. I had them for five years. But I, then at, at the end of that, I started missing what I love doing, which is training people. Uh, a baseball team got hold. These are all youth athletes. So a baseball team got hold of me. A soccer team got hold of me. And they just kept pounding me and pounding. Like, Mark, come on. We want to, we want, our kids need to be faster. Uh, so I slowly got back into training people. And, you know, I... I, I I think that's just what I was put here for. I enjoy working with younger athletes. I don't prefer, I don't particularly like working with pros because they've already made it. Yeah. Um, they, you know, maybe they're just trying to get better there too, but they've already made it. I like seeing these younger athletes and saying like, there are no shortcuts, but I can give you a shorter cut than because I've been through it. I've made all the mistakes and I've luck, been very lucky in having some of the best coaches and the best athletes surrounding me for, you know, 20 years. Um, I can give you a, a, a better route to get there. So um, I got back into training probably five years later. Been there, done that, and you could pass on all your learnings. Mark, I do want to go back to 88. It is such a touchstone for this country. Ben Johnson, would you say you were teammates with him or you were friends with him? I was friends with him. And I'm still friends with him. I'm mm-hmm. still sleeping at York. I've never treated him any differently. Like I, I, I know what he went through and I know why he did it. And... You know what? We, like I said, he didn't kill anybody. He didn't rob a bank. He didn't hurt anybody. He's just he just wanted to be better. And you know, he's also surrounded by people who you know he didn't make up these things by himself. His coaches, his support staff all say, you know, Ben, this is what you need to do. He's got the doctors, and, and so he just followed their their guidance. So I love Ben. Ben's my brother. Always was. Always will be. And, uh, and if you don't mind providing an update, he's kind of been off the radar for so long. I don't think people realize. Is he still actively coaching and training people? Yeah. He's a, I saw him, um, I said, I, up, up until this winter, I re- really haven't been to York in years. But he's been up there the whole time coaching younger athletes as well. So it's, it's great to see. And I, I talked to the parents of the athletes he coaches. And they're all, you know what, we're just going to here to learn from the best. That's all. Forget yeah. his past. He knows what he's doing. And, he's, he's, you know. We want our kids to learn from him, which is, which is great. I'd love to see that. Onwards and upwards. Mark, for the layperson, you may find this an insane question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Mark McCoy, gold medalist hurdler, running against Ben Johnson, gold medalist sprinter, in the 100-meter race and in a 110-meter hurdles race. How close would either of those races be? <laughs> I crushed him in both. <laughs> That's the answer I wanted. No, no. Actually, well, you know what? Here's the thing, and I'm not trying to be full of myself here, is the reason I think I actually wasn't that great a hurdler. Like, technique-wise, if you had an eye and you looked at the final, I was the worst in that final in, in Barcelona, technique, technically. But I was fast. In 1993, the year, the year after the, um, the Olympics, I actually ran 10.08. So for, you know, for a layperson, that's, you know, 10 flat for sprinting is 
pretty damn fast. I mean, they're running those times nowadays. So I'd be pretty close to him. He'd still blow my doors off, but I don't think he would ever get over one hurdle. <laughs> <laughs> and, and neither would I want him to. I want to ask you about, you mentioned technically uh, a hurdler who was kind of a mentor for you and one of the best hurdlers in history. And he was considered a, a very technically proficient, Ronaldo Nehemiah, who eventually ended up with a career in the NFL. Was he someone you looked up to? And, and where does he fit in hurdling history for you? Oh, he was, he like, so Colin is my all-time favorite. Ronaldo was my hero growing up as soon as I picked up the hurdles because he was a world record holder at the time. And he was the actual guy who got me to be world-class. So I went down to Clemson. He was at Maryland, which was in our conference. And obviously, <laughs> he would kick my ass left, right, and center. But after one of the races, I went up to him and I, you know, I just asked him. I'm like, you know, Mr. Nehemiah, you don't know me from Adam. I'm a young Canadian hurdler. Could you just give me some tips on how to, you know, get better? And he sat with me for like an hour. And he wrote down his whole program or, or a program. He said, you need to be doing this, 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 and this. And I'm like, I was blown away because I was like, it's almost impossible, the amount of work he used to do. And he was a technician as well. He was so technically proficient and so strong and fit. And so I took his program, and within a year, I went from being, you know, nobody to winning the Commonwealth Games, Commonwealth record, fifth in the world, just from, you know, talking with him for a little while. Wow. And as you said, he went to the NFL, and then he came back. And the funny thing is, he was on my team with, with my manager, and I was rooming with him in the oh, early wow. 90s. So I was rooming with my, with my child, child, child time uh, hero. You know, we became, we got to become good friends as well. So, yep. Those are the two people who had the biggest influence on my hurdle career. That's fantastic. Eventually you get to room with them and, and that's quite a, a full circle event. Absolutely. You know, what really struck me, Mark, when you talk about track and training is just pain. I read you train 1,461 days for a 13 second race. What kind of mindset do you need to handle that? <laughs> you got to be very stubborn or very stupid. <laughs> my was stubborn. Always, yeah, let, let's, let's go with stubborn. It's a long time in between, uh, you know, big events for us. Again, it comes down to the people you surround yourself with. Like, I was always around people who wanted to train hard, never made excuses, always wanted to win. And so I had competition. Like, can you imagine training with the best person in the world in whatever field you are every day, day in and day out? So that's what I used to do all the way, most of the way through my career, some of the best people in the world, and then finally the best in the world. You know, you get up in the, in the morning motivated because you're going to go, you're going to battle every day. So you do have to, I think your environment is everything. Um, if you're around those type of people and, you know, and you're not, you can't be up all the time. You'll burn yourself out. But if you're around enough people, when you're down, they're up. So they carry you around. And then when they're down, you're up. So uh, it, mm -hmm. it's so important to have the right people around you. And again, uh, people always say, you know, you, you're so lucky, you're blessed with good genetics. Um, yeah, I had good genes, but I was blessed with discipline and um, the ability to go out and certain, like I used to chase people all over the world. I'd go to Finland, I'd go to France and train with all the best hurdlers around there because to this day, I, I like learning. Like I get up at 5.30 in the morning and I listen to podcasts. I probably listen to yours now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. From all different types of, of fields with, with successful people and what they do and how I can get better. So now I can translate this to my athletes and try to make, again, not a shortcut, but a shorter cut to, to getting better. Always surrounding yourself with good people, even if it's Always. through your uh, earphones. 
Mark, I want to ask you about one significant race. You won the 60-meter hurdles title in 1993 in front of a hometown crowd. Toronto's then called Skydome. What was that experience like for you? That was the best. And again, there's a, there was a little controversy around that too. There's always controversy in my life. <laughs> it seems like it. Yeah. That whole time was, number one, I love running at home. It's I, My favorite track meets are the old Toronto Star Maple Leaf games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 16,000 people in a small stadium, home crowd. That used to pop me up. So this is the first time since then that I was able to run at home. Um, it's great to have my family around. Uh, my, my kids were, I, actually it was really hectic because obviously coming back, you know, being Olympic champion and having the world championships in your whole ground. You know, TSN was there. Like, everybody was following me around the whole week before the, the event. My wife was in a hospital <laughs> with um, just feeding problems for my... I had a, a newborn then. So I was taking care of the kids. I was training. I was doing interviews. Um, the day after the the final, I actually came down with a, with a flu. I think I was just run down. And I was mm. in bed. That's probably the worst I ever remember being sick. For like three or four days, I could not get out of bed. I was just totally run down. So it was exciting. But uh, you know what? When it was over, I was so glad. (laughs) Too much of a good thing. Too much. Mark, you've been great with your time. Uh, Before we close up, I want to ask you, and as you know, track and field, a little more prominent in Europe, outside of North America. But I want to ask you the strangest place that you've ever been recognized. In a weird airport or a weird geography where you didn't expect it? There are a few places where I'm like... How the hell do you, like, even to this day, how do you remember 30 years? You're not even old enough to remember me. But I was, it was coming through um, Edinburgh Airport just after the Commonwealth Games in 1986. And I had this thing of um, always chewing gum. Like, you can see the, because the, the cameras pan through on the way, on the, at the beginning of the races. And I'm always chewing away like crazy. I don't know if it was a nervous reaction. And then I'd run the race and I'd come across the finish line and I'm chewing gum. And I think I, I think I stick it somewhere during the race, but I don't <laughs> hope so. But um, I was coming through the airport. I was on the conveyor belt, and the kid was going the other way, and he couldn't have been, couldn't have been more than ten years old. And he go, turns to me and he goes, "The fastest chewer in the West." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm guessing he watched the race, but uh, that was the uh, the funniest thing I've ever I've ever heard within rec- uh, regards to people recognizing me. Yeah. That absolutely qualifies, Mark. That that would have been unexpected. I want to ask what you're working on these days, uh, just what you, uh, where people can follow you and know what you're up to. I still work with a lot of um, younger athletes. I work out of uh, Centennial Park in the summers because I love to take them outside. I think these hockey players especially spend too much time in the gyms. Um, so I work with not just hockey players. I got some soccer, some skiers, they, like all variety of sports. So I'm there all summer long. Right now I'm up at York in the in the winter and I'm also just launching a new business because I like searching for again I, I said this a million times today is not shortcuts but a better way it's like minimal effective dose like and it's not because I'm lazy it's because when you're busy or if you're an athlete I want to get the most amount of work in there's only so many hours of the day you can train so what's the most effective ways um, so I'm I, I'm actually into like, about six months ago I launched this business it's uh, EMS which is electromuscular stimulation which is a, it's a, it's for resistance training, which is great for somebody who's injured because you can't do squats and stuff. You've got bad knees, but you can always work out with this. It contracts everything at an incredible intensity at once. So I can get a whole workout done in 20 minutes. And the thing, the funny thing is the reason I started it is because we used to use this back in the eighties mm. with Ben and Charlie, like, and I was like, 
they still have this. They just made it better. <laughs> the Germans perfect everything. Oh, yeah. So um, it's a company called BioWaves. Um, I have a website up, and I will start, I'm actually going to start to promote it in the spring. So look for it on um, social media. It's just going to be BioWaves. And it's in like electromuscle stimulation because I'm just trying to make people's workout more proficient. And it's great for anybody, any busy people. Uh, like I said it's, you can get a, a like a week's work of worth workouts in 20 minutes. It's it's that intense. So that's my new venture. I'm always looking for anything that's going to help health and wellness uh, become easier for people because it's it's so hard, especially after COVID. Sure. Well, as you say, there's no shortcuts, but there are better ways. Mark, I want to thank you for your time today. I want to wish you continued success going forward. Andrew, thank you so much for having me on. It was my pleasure. To the listeners, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Mark McCoy, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we we the perfect perfect podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous. Or sexy. Catch us on on the Dean Dean Blundell Network or on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Because democracy democracy is something something you do. I'm Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. We all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com.